Welcome to the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Jim Durkin, and on this week's episode, we're talking elk, specifically in Pennsylvania. Elk in the United States once roamed from coast to coast at an estimated population of 10 million. However, elk populations today total roughly 1 million and are mostly scattered throughout the western U.S. The eastern subspecies of elk was considered extinct by the late 1890s. Restoration efforts began in the early part of the 20th century and continue to this day in states throughout the East with some success and equal failure. But states like Pennsylvania and even more so Kentucky have shown it's possible to restore a huntable population of elk in the eastern United States. What it boils down to is suitable habitat and cooperation with landowners and farmers. My guest this week is Pennsylvania Game Commission elk biologist Jeremy Banfield. We talk about the success of the elk restoration program and some of the roadblocks for expanding the herd. Hope you enjoy our talk and thanks for listening. This is the Hunt Quietly podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Are you uh are you are you familiar with the story of Alter Rock? No. So it's real quick. It's a story that took place back in the 1700s, where this Native American named Tupine. That's the way his name trans uh, translated. Tupines. And Alter Rock is now Pulpit Rock, but this Native American was meditating up on this bluff, which was all just a rock overlooking the valley and he hears a, a gunshot and he goes down to investigate because it interrupts his meditation. And at this time, I think the natives were figuring out that settlers were, were here to stay and weren't going anywhere. So there was animosity growing. Okay. So he goes down and finds this French trapper field dressing an elk that he had just shot and twin two pines hits him over the head with a rock and kills him. Okay. Goes back up to altar rock and continues his meditation until the next day. And the, the French trappers gather a posse when they realize what happened and they go up to altar rock and they shoot two pines and kill him there. And on this rock, two pines grew and were there for many, many years. And it's it's a cool story because it takes place right near Benazet, Pennsylvania. I was just going to ask you, where is Pulpit Rock? Yes, I've never been there, but I read the story and I, I looked it up. It was it's it was the near the uh, place of Grand Point, which was a settlement by French the French. And after that happened, the the natives you know ransacked the the settlement and and pushed the the trappers on their way, and I think they got away. But this fight took place in Pennsylvania near Benazette over an elk. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So that was pretty cool. When we're done, can you send me whatever you have on that? Because I I really enjoy the history stuff. And what what year did you say? 17 what? This was uh, between 1700 and 1725. Okay. And it's the story of Alter Rock. Uh, Pennsylvania Mountain Stories by Henry Shoemaker. Yeah. Oh, 
All right. I probably, I may have, I have a bunch of old PDFs by Shoemaker. Um, I mean, he did some of the early stuff on like mammals of Pennsylvania and, and yeah. Stuff. Story of Alter Rock. All right. I will check it out and look it's it up. It's a very cool story. So we're here with Jeremy Banfield, elk biologist from the Game Commission, Pennsylvania. How you doing, man? Very good, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I apologize. It has taken us. We've had a lot of back and forth for everybody listening. We've had a lot of back and forth on uh, getting the time set up and, and actually making this happen. So I think yeah. it's a part of six months. We were playing podcast tag, right? In the, um, yes. Yes. And the last time we tried to schedule, you said an elk got caught in a trap you had to tend to? Um, yeah. So what was that? Was that like Monday? Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it was because I, I think it was on the holiday. Um, yeah. We are active. Like winter is our capture season. We're actively trapping at the at the moment. And um, you can't control when they go in there. We just have uh, when I say trapping. I'm sorry. I should elaborate a little bit on this. Don't picture like a little lake hold, you know, fox coyote trap. It's a very large um three foot wide six foot tall eight foot long steel frame with like a heavy heavy marine grade netting on it and then it has a drop door on one side so the elk go in uh there's a little trip wire in the back they bump that the door drops down behind them and then we have the cameras that text to our phone you know just cell cameras on them so we can see if there was a an animal in there so that was the deal i had to run out and it actually was a non-target catch we are after uh adults it was a calf so i just let it go so we'll get into that, like what you do with that sort of data gathering and whatnot. But why don't you tell uh, the folks out there who you are, what you do, and uh, share that background with us? Sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, as Jim said, my name is Jeremy Banfield. I'm uh, Pennsylvania's elk biologist or the elk biologist for the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Um, I think my official title is wildlife biologist, but like 95% of my duties fall toward elk. So I tend to just introduce myself as the elk biologist. And um, I do do a little bit of like, I, I do a bear check station during bear season. I do, I help with deer aging, stuff like that. But again, most of the stuff that I do is is related to, um, to elk. I have been here since 2013. Um, so coming up, May will be a decade. May will be 10 years and uh, probably have the best job in the game commission uh it's not without challenges i i sometimes think that the bear biologist has a a more interesting job but i, I like i really enjoy my job um again i have bad days but uh for the most part it's 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 a dream so i, I really do like it and you are a, a biologist in montana correct i mean is is that where you're from montana no um yes i was a biologist in montana i'm not from there um, I am originally from Western New York, so like Finger Lakes region, and um, most wildlifers bounce around. We move a lot until you can finally get a permanent job. My first permanent job was in the state of Montana uh, in Forsyth, which is very Eastern Montana. My wife absolutely hated it there, and uh, <laughs> oh jeez, I know everybody's like, oh, that's terrible, that sucks. Um, <laughs> and so I started looking for other positions and um, came across this one. And, and I do remember when I applied, I was like, well, I'll never get that. But I, I meet the minimum qualifications. And now here I sit and my wife is uh, much happier in Pennsylvania. And we were it, we got closer to home. You know, we started having kids. So just trying to get them closer to grandparents. Uh, stuff hey, like that. 
I know, I know the feeling. We lived in Alaska until we started having kids, and then we we moved back to to Pennsylvania. So, okay, where in Alaska? I lived in Anchorage. Okay, yeah, they say Anchorage is twenty minutes from Alaska, so that's pretty much where we lived. <laughs> I lived in Talkeetna for like six months or so. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, I love okay. Talkeetna. Yeah, it was interesting. It was like twenty years ago, but yeah. So you moved moved back here. Now your work you did in Montana. How did how did that compare to what what you're doing now? Similar, um, uh, similar and not similar. So uh, Pennsylvania is just structured a little bit differently. Here we have species specialists. So there's an elk biologist. There's a bear biologist. There's actually two deer biologists. Um, Montana was a little bit different in that it was more like broken into geographic um, regions per se. So you were you were, you know, a regional biologist versus a species specialist. And it might just be the size of the state. You know, Montana is so much bigger than Pennsylvania, but um, um, certainly similar kind of workload, just different structure, if that makes sense. Right. I was just wondering if there was a comparison to some of the elk stuff you're doing now versus what you did did out there. Yeah, I mean, similarities, but again, it's like it's all elk now and um out there it was just more a broader diversity of different species so right so let's get into some of the things you're doing now um do you want to expand about like the the trap you just mentioned and what kind of work goes into that sure um so that is part of our um capture and collar program basically we try and maintain um a, a subsection of the population that's that's marked in some way in this case, it's a radio collar, right? So that gives us three different things. One, it gives us um, uh, survival estimates. So when the animal has a radio collar on it, we know whether it's alive or dead, and then we can calculate survival on an annual basis. Um, two, it is uh, essentially a spy, <laughs> for lack of a better term, um, during our aerial survey. So we do uh, an aerial survey uh, every winter. It's actually ongoing right now. Um, so there's a plane flying around counting elk. They have no knowledge of where the radio collars are, but then basically after, um, after I get the data from them, after I get all of their observations, I go back and I say, all right, was there an elk, uh, a radio collared elk at, at a same time and, and place that they saw a group of elk? If there was, that animal was seen. Conversely, if we know that there was an elk in a certain place at a certain time, they fly right past it. They didn't see it. I know that animal was not seen. And it's that ratio of of seen versus unseen that we can then use to basically estimate how much of the population they're missing when they they fly over. And that gives us an estimate. So they're spies during our aerial survey. Um, and then the third thing is habitat selection. The radio collars are GPS collars. So they're they're sending uh, they're uploading locations to um, um, a satellite structure, basically. And then we can get those locations within about an hour of them being uploaded. And um, there is an assumption that when an animal is in a certain place, there's something valuable to it, right? Um, sure. And so we use the the locations of those animals for habitat selection, i.e., meaning you know they're they're in a certain place at a certain time because there's something valuable there for them. So, what kind of predation do you see on on Pennsylvania elk? I mean, obviously, would be black bears. It, on calves, almost none on adults. Um, main predator of adult is uh, humans directly through hunting or indirectly through vehicle collisions, things like that. 
Um, black bears will predate calves. Coyotes will probably predate calves. We don't actually have any data to, to validate that, but I'm sure if a coyote came across uh, an elk calf, it would an, an unprotected elk calf, it would um, kill it and eat it. But uh, black bears would be the main source of predation. Even then, it's about 10%, which isn't you know astronom- astronomically high. Um, I always tell people that like predators understand risk, and so when they have the choice between a white-tailed fawn, you know, guarded by the 80-pound doe versus a a 30-pound uh, elk calf guarded by the 600-pound cow, you know, they're probably going to go after that that whitetail, you know, nine times out of ten type of thing. And whitetails are just everywhere compared to elk. So, yeah, fishing game. When I lived in Alaska, did a study on moose calves and their um their number one uh predator were were black bears and that's i think surprised a lot of people because you know grizzly bears wolves but it was black bears that really focused on the moose calves that uh that surprised a lot of people yeah yeah um and black bears are known to kill elk calves and moose calves in in other states and things like that so i'm sure it happens here i just don't the data that we have says it's kind of a a limit basis what kind of habitat to to the pa elk pr- prefer what are you what um, are you guys seeing or is it yeah that's a, a really good question um elk in general are um, a grazing species right they're going to be more related to cattle than they are deer and so they're after grass i mean herbaceous would be the kind of broad term that we use and and really what i mean by that is like anything that's not woody so um shrubs trees things like that that's woody anything that's outside of that would be herbaceous so like all of your forbs your grasses your legumes all that stuff that stuff that basically grows annually and then dies back off would be herbaceous type habitat that's going to be the primary um forage for elk they will browse um but it's kind of secondary to that grazing component and and seasonally so or seasonally more than other times like when snow builds up during the winter, not this winter because we haven't had like any snow, but um, if snow does build up during the winter, you know, they'll shift over to a browse based diet. But for the most part, we're talking about grassland type environments. You can call them food plots if you want, um, but that open field herbaceous habitat is really what they're going to be after. And north central part of the state really lacks that stuff. I mean, we we work pretty hard to keep that on the landscape and keep it here and in a early successional state. So if you let a grass field go, it's going to turn into shrubs. Shrubs are going to turn into young forest. Young forest is going to turn into old forest. And so just keeping that successional process set back constantly, either through um, fire or through mowing, are some of the biggest habitat um, activities that we do. So trying to keep that grassland component on the landscape for the elk is uh, is probably always going to be a challenge in the eastern deciduous forest. I mean, it just it wants to be trees. And so we've got to constantly set that process back. So do you think because the preferred habitat is is grassland or or open, which probably is mostly farmed, do you think that that has been the detriment to expanding the herd? And so let's talk about the herd size first before we get into that. What what are what's our herd size? Give us some of the history. And we we could even talk about the history of, of of elk in Pennsylvania. Okay, so uh, again, I told you we do an aerial survey every year, and that gives us an estimate. It is an estimate. It's not the exact number of elk. It comes with uh, variability and confidence intervals and things like that around it. But this past year, it was um, 1,304, so 1,304 
Uh, again, that's growing, right? It is. It is growing slowly, but very slowly. Um, my educated guess would be between thirteen hundred and fourteen hundred animals, right? There's not exactly thirteen hundred and four elk out there. It's it's probably somewhere between that thirteen fourteen hundred mark. Um, it like you said, it, it has been growing just at a slow rate, and that's kind of by design. Um, we don't want to have this exponential growth of elk. Uh, they tend to, um, how do I say this tactfully? They get into trouble with people sometimes, especially agricultural areas or um, vehicle collisions, things like that. So every wildlife species has some form of conflict with people. With elk, it just tends to be amplified because they're they're big, right? They 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 eat a lot. They're they're large. You know, it's it's. I always tell people it's one thing to have five little floppy-eared whitetails in your cornfield. Something totally different to have five elk in your cornfield. So, do you get a lot of resistance from farmers not wanting the expansion? Um, I don't know if I would say direct resistance from farmers. They're not generally supportive of of elk expansion. Um, there is a huge dichotomy between the people that live with the elk kind of in the north central part of the state and then everybody else that comes from the outside to to see them. So there's a little bit of that nimbyism, right? Like not in my backyard type of thing. Um, uh, again, it's different when you have to deal with them and deal with the damage and, and even deal with the tourism that comes along with with elk is, a, is another piece that that has to be, you know, that has to be bore by the local residents. Um, so they're not always supportive because <laughs> we've the the reintroduction program took place like in 1913 if i'm correct right started in 1913 um and yellowstone was kind of exporting elk at that time and um we were one of the states that received elk so 1913 1915 we got two shipments from yellowstone national park um, and then it was there was a little bit of a vacancy, a, a period where we got nothing. And then 1924 and 1926, we got a, a handful more. So like the easy thing to say there is between 1913 and 1926, we got 177 elk released in the the state of Pennsylvania. And, and everything that we have today is uh, pretty much a, a you know a result of that early population. And we were hunting elk. Back in the 20s, too, I see that, like, from what this uh, reference material I'm looking at, 26 bulls were harvested in 1927. Yep. And then it trickled off. If you keep going, it kind of, like, into the early 30s, 31, 32, I think it went down to, like, one. Um, and then they shut the hunting season down. And they they just brought those animals in, you know, from Yellowstone and um, kind of just dumped them out, right? There wasn't any thought into what habitat they needed or or things like that, uh, there probably wasn't a whole lot of um, regulation on poaching. I mean, the Game Commission existed, our state game protectors existed at the time, but it's got to be vastly different than, you know, back then to what it is now. So um, that population probably was dwindling. We don't exactly know what was happening. Uh, a lot of the state had been cut over by that time, right? Massive clear cuts going on, and that makes really good elk habitat. But then at some point that that browse that, you know, regenerating um, the forest is going to grow beyond the height of an elk where they can reach that forage. And then it's terrible habitat. So that probably contributed to it. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, nobody really knows exactly what happened in the in the early 30s there that, that caused that population to decline. It didn't disappear completely to our uh, 
uh, at least to our knowledge, you know, it, it dwindled down to like, again, nobody really knows, but there's some estimates as low as 25. There's some around 50. Um, it was a very small number of animals and it kind of stayed that way until the early 60s. And then beginning in the 60s, 70s, 80s, there was a renewed interest in habitat, a renewed interest in wildlife management in general. And, you know, the population responded to a lot of that, that interest in change in management and has ballooned out to where we are today. Uh, how much how much poaching goes on? Um, every maybe every third year, every other year, every probably every third year, um, somebody gets uh, uh, prosecuted, cited for poaching. So it's pretty low. I have to imagine that if it was happening more frequently, you know, they would catch more of them, type of thing. So sure, um, it's still I think it still occurs, but for the most part, it's it stays pretty low. Uh, I do always tell people like, it's not easy to do. Okay. You better have the front end loader ready because when you, when you shoot one, it's 800 pounds. I mean, a bull is going to be between 800 and 900 pounds. A cow is going to be between like five and six. So if you gut it there, you're leaving a ton of evidence. Yeah. You're (laughs) you're going to reduce the weight, but you're going to leave a bunch of evidence. Um, and so there's no, like you could crack a whitetail, pick it up and throw it in the bed of a truck and be gone. Um, that doesn't happen with an elk. And if you do shoot a big bull or something like that, don't tell anybody because like, what are you going to do? You're going to squirrel the antlers away in a, in a closet somewhere. And, and if you tell somebody like what well, sink ships, you know, loose lips sink ships. Yeah. And, or post it on social media. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, so it, like they could be genetically tested. You can, there's a lot of ways to link it back to Pennsylvania. I can look at a Pennsylvania rack and tell you with, at least with some degree of accuracy that like that didn't come from Colorado. I guarantee it. Why um, is that? That was that's one of my questions. Why are our elk so freaking big, and why do they have that distinct look, almost like a red stag? Yeah, they're they're um, okay. I don't know exactly. I can't. You can't put me on the spot with saying like, do they have red stag DNA in them? They might. I mean, who knows what happened again back in the 30s and 40s and 50s? Like it, some all kinds of weird things could have been going on. To our knowledge, those those uh, genes have never been brought in. We do not have the main beam length that many of the Western states do, but we tend to put on a lot more mass. And then we almost always lack typical bulls. They always, you know, when they get big, they tend to always go non-typical. Um, and so uh, it, it's not that our elk are, are bigger than any other state. They just, they're, the average age is greater, so they're allowed to grow longer. They're allowed to put on that the age that they need to uh, to kind of maximize the antler potential. Um, but again, we do tend to see shorter main beams, uh, a lot more junk when you get out into the past, past like the G4, G5, G6, and then um, heavier mass. And the only other thing I'll say is that when you usually at the G4, there's almost like it's not a not a 90 degree curve, but it's like a 70 degree, maybe 65, 70 degree curve um, in the antlers. That's very, very characteristic of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, I thought that for forever that, that they're just so distinct. And when you see one, you can almost say to yourself, especially being from Pennsylvania, that's a Pennsylvania yeah. elk. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, okay. and I, I, I mean, it, is that been not a rumor, but has that been discussed, the potential of red stag DNA? I've heard it before. Like, there's occasions where we'll see, like, crowning, you know, up into the, again, G4, G5, G6, somewhere in that range. You'll, you'll see this, like, this mass of, of uh, uh, webbing in the antler that creates kind of a crown. That's 
that's characteristic of, of red deer, red sags. Um, it, it's not really been brought up. I, I, again, it's one of those things that you could speculate on it, but you're never going to be able to prove it one way or another. So, um, our elk are isolated, right? We've got a, a fairly isolated genetic or genetically isolated population. And so, um, the antler structure is certainly unique to Pennsylvania, but I don't know if it's got, you know, red deer DNA in there or not. So they do interbreed. I will say that, right? New Zealand, uh, has an entire like farming industry surrounded, uh, on red deer and they'll breed elk and red deer. It makes a magnificent looking animal. Um, but, uh, I don't know if that's ever actually <laughs> happened in Pennsylvania. So you said about the elk being large and is it, is, if you draw a tag in Pennsylvania, you're, you're almost guaranteed to shoot a trophy. No, um, the average age is six and a half. So, um, most six and a half year old bulls are a good six by six. And so not a little raghorn, you know, I mean, they're, a uh, good mass, good looking, you know, symmetrical six by six. The monsters tend to be in that eight, nine, 10 year, uh, range every year. There's, there's people that, that kill raghorn bulls and there's nothing wrong with that. If they're happy, yeah. with it, that's great. Um, there are a larger percentage of big bulls out there. So uh, it's not a guarantee. It's a greater possibility than it is, I think, in in some other places. Um, but every year, there's people that hold out. You know, they, they pass up on decent bulls, hoping to find a huge one. And then come the end of the season, you know, Friday, Saturday, they just... <laughs> They shoot whatever you know. I mean, yeah, it's the, it's the, the opening day bull versus the last day bull. Yeah, I sh- I sh- I use that word guaranteed loosely, but I think the expectation is if you're lucky enough to draw a a bull elk tag, your hopes are high for the 300 plus inch bull. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean the the monsters are in the 400 range. So. So with the habitat not being ideal. You think it's age and just genetics that the antlers can get that that large? Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say our habitat's not ideal. Our habitat is certainly sufficient to provide nutrition to the animals. It's just it's always going to require work on on uh, you know management on the management side to try and and uh, keep that successional setback process in place. Um, beyond that, yes, I would say that it's, it's age related. You know, we just don't have, we've got, you know, 1300 to 1400 elk, three to 400 of them are going to be big bulls or, or I should say anything greater than a spike. Um, and then within that, you know, we take 40 a year, 50 a year, somewhere in that range, depending on, on the uh, tag allocation for the year. In, in your habitat studies, I, I would imagine, and I, I'm just guessing here, but I would imagine you guys do a GIS and do a query with elk-specific habitat to place the elk in suitable habitat. So if having said that, is there any habitat in Pennsylvania that is ideal or or suitable? that doesn't have elk on it because I think speaking from a hunter from Pennsylvania, I think most people think that, you know, you have Philadelphia and Pence in Pittsburgh and man, there is, there's not a lot in between Harrisburg, but 
there's a lot of country that most people aren't if you haven't been there i mean it could get pretty rural real quick yeah and i think from a from a hunter's perspective you're you know we i i think man there, there's places that elk could exist that they don't am, am i right or yeah i think um there's certainly areas in the state that have uh, ideal habitat that don't have elk currently. The biggest handicap we have there, the biggest conflict is related to agriculture. So the north central part of the state has the lowest amount of ag- agriculture um, proportionally, you know, as a per capita type thing throughout the whole state. Um that's probably correlated with public land. Okay, so the north central part of the state is where we have a lot of state forests, a lot of state game lands. Yeah. Um, if you look at it, you know, you look at a map, it's like, uh, I think it's 75% public in the this area. So obviously, if it's public land, it's not ag. Um, and, you know, that's where we're trying to keep the animals because they stay out of trouble. And then it keeps them open for um, hunting purposes and, and viewing purposes, stuff like that. You know, could they exist outside of that area? They could. They're probably invariably going to end up getting into trouble with agricultural production in, in certain areas. Um, there's very, how do I say this? There's not much natural habitat that you can create that is going to compete with the draw of row crops, right? Like you can make the greatest habitat in the world and um, it's not going to, it's not going to keep animals out of corn (laughs) sure so farmers can legally kill elk for crop damage right it's um the law is pretty subjective they have the legal right to to remove the animals if they're doing damage and um they exercise that right sometimes so i just i feel like if we try to move animals outside of the north central part of the state at least right now we it would it would fail it would just it would cause a lot of drama a lot of headache and then invariably slowly but surely they would be wiped out by coming into conflict with uh, with agricultural production, has there ever been an initiative to 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 try to expand them outside? Not with outside the-, the current elk. So our current elk management area is only about two thirds full, and um, it is uh, for anyone listening. It's basically two H and two G. So it's. Uh, I mean, I can. Do you want me to rattle off the boundaries, or is that overkill? Yeah, if you want. I mean, I mean, think most people listen to this. I mean, I'm there's Pennsylvanians that listen to this for sure, but they'll, they'll probably have to look on a map. I, I will likely have to look on a map, to be honest with you. <laughs> okay, so uh, Interstate 80 would be the southern boundary that carries over toward like the Dubois area. And then and Interstate goes 80 goes across the state from from east to west. East to west. Yep. So um if we go to the very southwest corner of the elk management area it's like in the dubois area where us 219 and uh interstate 80 intersect that's the corner we go north on 219 all the way up to six which is like um south just a little bit south of bradford area um and then six we carry across eastward now all the way to like galton almost and then we grab pa 287 and run that back south to uh, 220, which just drops back into Interstate 80 down in like a uh, Lock Haven um, area. So, I mean, it's that that big square, that big chunk. Again, if, if you're doing the, the wildlife management units, if you're a deer hunter or any kind of hunter in Pennsylvania, it'd be all of 2H and, and almost all of 2G. There's a little bit of a, a boundary disparity on the very eastern side. 
anyway, um, within that area, we're only about two half to two thirds occupied. So there's a ton of space to expand where the current elk management area is. And again, trying to keep that initiative of trying to keep them on public land um, where they stay out of trouble is is going to be one of our priorities for now. The only other part of the state that would rival that amount of public land is going to be the ANF, the Allegheny National Forest, um, federal property. And um, we've had, we've discussed and considered that at the moment, again, we have room to expand where we are. And um, they don't really have the habitat that would support elk. It's mostly big timber. It's a lot of cherry. Um, yeah. So they just don't have a whole lot of the herbaceous habitat that would support elk at the moment. And the, the deer are finally just coming back. Yep. In that region. I mean, I wish <laughs> in a perfect world, I just wish people would be more tolerant and get used to living with them because there'd be so many more opportunities if that were the case. But yeah, I, if I were a farmer, I'd probably think different. And I know, yeah. like you said, a field full of deer is a little bit different than a field full of elk. Yeah, completely. I mean, just they're big. So just them walking around tends to cause damage. And, you know, you talked about the public land and, and I think a lot of that you hear from hunters and the few hunters that I know, if you draw a tag that they, uh, tend to, to go on to private land once they get hunting pressure on public. Have you guys heard, you've obviously heard that complaint and has there been initiative to provide access because to be, to be frank, the people that I've talked to said, if you don't get one, like at the first morning, the first day, and you don't have access to private, you might as well forget it or hire a guide because the guides have have the private all locked up. Is that fair? I don't, know. I don't know if I would agree with that completely. Now, I am not an elk hunter. You know, I'm not in that position where I go and knock on people's doors and things like that. We do do a survey every year. Um, after the, So every hunter, whether they kill an elk or not, gets a survey in the mail. One of the questions in, in there is... Um, you know, were you were you denied permission to go on public land at any point? And uh, so far, about 40 percent of the people are saying they were denied permission. Wait, which to, means to go on private land on private land. OK, yeah. So 60 percent of the people are still being allowed to go on. And 60 percent is not a terrible, you know, number. I'd like it to be a little bit higher. Um, I know that certain landowners do charge trespass fees. Certain landowners do have um, uh, agreements with guides and things like that. There's also landowners that uh, if you are with a guide, they will say no. And if you go up there and knock on the door yourself without a guide, they'll be like, yeah, absolutely. So it, it just varies, you know, on landowner, landowner type of thing. I don't know if I would also, if I would agree that, you know, in the first two days, they're vacating public land and moving on to private property. I mean, there's not a lot of elk hunters to begin with. So the, the idea that you're pressuring them out of certain areas, um, I just don't know if I agree with that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that's why we're talking. You know, I, I get to these stories and yeah, I think you have to take everything with a grain of salt. But the one story specifically that that I know a guy who who uh, drew a cow tag and this uh, would have completed his 
Pennsylvania five, whatever deer, bear, elk, turkey, you know, the, the, the big four. And, um, he hunted public, hunted public. And then to get on to private, he had to, he had to reach out to a guy to get him access to this area and pay him, I don't know, 1200 bucks. And he shot his cow. Yeah. Yeah. And go ahead. I was going to say, has that been considered part of the elk initiative to, to coordinate with the landowners that hold elk and to provide access? Cause we do have a, a Pennsylvania access program. Has that been ever we considered? We do. Um, yeah, we've had conversations about certain zones where they are almost entirely private and it's very challenging for hunters to get, um, to access animals mainly zone 14 is what i'm talking about but um no i mean we've never actually gone out and tried to create any kind of program that would increase the access uh again kind of just relating back to that idea that 60 percent of the people are being are able to get out there and, and get it accomplished but um if that starts to change through time through years then then yeah we might end up doing going down that road a little bit and trying to coordinate something i don't I don't really like the idea of trespass fees and, you know, yeah, you can shoot those elk. You got to give me 500 bucks type of thing. Um, Cause that, that flies counter to the idea that, you know, hunting is supposed to be for everybody. It doesn't matter your background. You're not supposed to, it's not, it doesn't cater to the, uh, the aristocracy. It's supposed to be, you know, for the, that- the common good. And so when it, when we start trickling down that road, that, that tends to erode some of that mentality. That is very important, and I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because that's certainly what we preach on this podcast is publicly accessible free hunting. Yeah. Absolutely. So I figured I'd bring it up just because I've heard it more than once, and and we're talking about it. But you yeah. know, on on the on the flip side, if you're getting sixty percent of people that are satisfied and are finding elk on public land and they're successful, then you probably want to see that number closer to 70 or 80%. But I think 60% is, I guess, doable. And what are the 40% that aren't satisfied with their hunt saying? So that's not quite what I was saying. It's it's the, I should phrase the question differently. Um, like 80% of the, I'm, uh, anybody that kills an elk, success is really what influences satisfaction. So sure. if, if they sure. kill an elk, Everybody's like, oh, yeah, that was great. If they don't, then, I mean, we asked this question on a scale from one to 10, like, how satisfied are we do it with the, uh, with your elk hunt? And again, for people that kill an elk, it's like anywhere between eight and 10. For those that don't, it's usually like around a four, five, six, somewhere in that range. What I, what I was saying is that 60% of the people that ask permission to go onto private property are, are told yes. 40% of the people that ask permission to go on private property are told no. So, like, of everybody that, that hunts on private property, what percentage are being allowed access? It's 60%. And so that to me is still pretty good. You, I mean, compare that to whitetails or, or really any other species, and it's like night and day. Um, so for the most part, when you ask, you are being granted permission uh, to go. It's that 40% that I don't really want to see grow. And as it does grow, or if it does start to grow, I should say that, um, then we could start talking about different access programs and trying to find landowner incentives and, and things like that. What are some of the other questions you ask on your survey? What are some of the hunters saying? Um, 
<laughs> I'd have to get it out to actually look at it. I mean, we ask about satisfaction. We ask uh, hunter pressure guide things like that. So sixty uh, percent higher guides, sixty um, percent overall higher guides. Ninety-five percent of the bull hunters hire a guide. So almost no every bull shit. hunter hires a guide, and then um, uh, of the entire group, about sixty percent go go guided. There's actually not a whole lot of. I shouldn't say. I gotta be careful saying that. There is a slight increase in your odds of success based on having a guide versus not, but it's not as strong as a lot of people think it is. I mean, they can't conjure elk. They can't, you know, they can't make them appear. They're going to know the area. They're going to know landowners. They're going to know where a lot of animals hang out, but there's still, you know, there, there are people that go guided that are unsuccessful every year. So, But 95% of people that draw a bull tag hire a guide. Yes. That's crazy. Yes. Do you and think it it's because people are coming from all over the country? They, I mean, all they're... over the state. Yeah, country, yes, but mostly state. Um, and yeah, if you don't know the area and you don't have time to scout or don't have the desire to scout, hire a guide, right? They'll, they'll um, a lot of times they'll put you up in a, in a lodge. They'll cover your meals. You ride around in their truck. So if you don't want to worry about where you're going to sleep, where you get, what you're going to eat and, and how to get around the landscape, that's the way to go. What's the success rate for the 5% that, that don't hire a guide? <sighs> the success rate on bulls is 95% as well. Um, Those are all the 95 that hire a guide. <laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, I'd have to go back and look. And I mean, I can do it right now if you really no, want No, that, that, that's okay. I mean, it just just thinking out loud here with with why the number's so high but i guess it's such a coveted tag that you feel like well shit i want to make sure i don't because you're going to draw it once if you draw it at all and you'll never draw it again i mean yeah that's not entirely true <laughs> it's that is the odds the odds have you ever had two, a person draw it two twice yes yes no way there's been I think like four or five cases where somebody has drawn two cows and there is one single case where a guy drew two bulls and you got to wait five years. And he waited his five years. I think he, I think there was actually like seven or eight years between the two, two tags, but there's been one case where a guy drew two bulls and supposedly, I mean, the rumor is, I don't know if this is true or not, but the rumor is he got like death threats. <laughs> I was going to say what, what relative is a high ranking politician in Pennsylvania of his, yeah, I don't know. I mean, no, there's none of that, obviously. But uh, yeah, I've, I've, I'm joking, of course. But damn, that's crazy odds. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I can't find it off the top of my head. If you needed that number, I could get it for you. Uh, the number of um, um just just off the head, or are we talking the the five percent that don't hire guide? Are they? Is it 50% success, 60, 70? No, it's, it, that, that's what I was saying earlier is like, there's not a whole lot of disparity between those that hire a guide and those that do. It's like 10% or something like that. So um, roughly so between. It's still going to be around 80, 85%. 85%. It's just so few of them do it. The sample size is so small. Yeah. And we're talking, how many bull tags do you give in a given year? Um, What did we do last year? I think we did 50, 60 last year, 60 last year. That's spread across the three seasons, though. That makes sense. Yeah, 
And there's an archery, what, an inline season or a muzzleloader season? Yep, there is an early archery season in, in um, the last part of September. There is the general season, the first full week of November. Sometimes it starts around uh, Halloween. And then there is a late season, the first full week of um, January. And uh, those three seasons, it's, you know, it's like 20 some days. You can technically hunt elk. Um, but yeah, across those three seasons, it was 70 bulls and uh, 100 and some cows. I'm putting me on the spot here. Hang on. Let me, I'm going to figure that out real quick. 178 total. I just got to get the exact numbers for you so I don't mess this up. 60 bulls and uh, 118 cows, 178 total this past year. Okay. Do you, do you take their measurements? There's a mandatory check station. We don't take measurements. We do. We, we'll pull the points. Oh, okay. Um, That's right. But I mean, it would just be a green score. It's going to change anyway because you got to wait yeah. 60 days type of thing. But uh, we take points off of them type of thing. But yeah, the, I'm sorry. I should have said that earlier. Within uh, a mandatory check station within 24 hours. Um, and yeah, that gives us the opportunity. We pull a tooth for aging purposes. We take a bunch of biological samples, CWD sample, blood samples, um, cows for pregnancy. Um, and that's where we we ask some of the questions to the hunters there. But again, they get a written um, or excuse me, an online uh, survey or they can do written if they don't have access to internet or something like that do you do you find have you found cwd in any no. samples no um to my knowledge we do not have chronic wasting disease in our elk population to date uh the pessimistic but realistic thing to say is that like eventually we're going to um we're just trying to slow the spread and delay that as much as possible but you know the day will come when when elk do pop positive for cwd the only positive spin I could put on that is that, um, you know, if we look at the model, the existing models, Colorado, Wyoming, they've had a disease for 40 plus years. You know, they they still have elk. They still have deer. Um, their landscape has changed a lot and um, we, we should expect changes. We're going to have to change our management strategies. It should not wipe out our entire population. Yeah. And where do you see the the population going? If you had a crystal ball in the next 25 years. Yeah. Um, I get that one a lot. Like, where do you, where do, what is our goal? And our, my PC answer is always, you know, within the um, available habitat, within the social acceptance, social acceptance is usually lower than what the habitat will actually support. But I've got, I told you I have 10 years. I got like, I don't know, probably another 20 years to go. If if we were able to double the population between now and then, you know, if we could go from 1,300 to 25, 2,600, somewhere in that range, and we were able to have 300 tags a year, that would be awesome, right? Like, I would be super, super excited by that and and consider that a successful career. So that's like there, my PC half is, you know, we, we got to sure. stay within what the habitat can support and what people will allow and, and what they'll be supportive of. But if I had, you know, my way and kind of my 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 internal goal is to double that population between now and then. And then, you know, my successor might be able to double it even more. It's always going to be habitat dependent. That's the biggest thing is we're always going to be fighting that habitat and, and the intense work that has to go into that um, to keep it in a, in a grassland type state. I'd like to see it get to like matching Kentucky, you know, <laughs> 17,000. <000. laughs> Do you know why Kentucky's that way? Probably because the old coal mines and strip, 
It's all grass now. Yes. Right? Yes. It's habitat uh, yeah. related. They have had, I mean, it's like you've heard of mountaintop removal. I mean, it's yeah. full on mountaintop. Counties have been stripped and reclaimed. And when you are there, you could tell somebody that they're in the foothills of Wyoming and they would believe, you know, you would not be able to tell the difference between Eastern Kentucky and foothills of Wyoming in that reclaimed strip mine because it's grasslands as far as you can see, little rolling hills, conifer covered tops. And you're like, it looks like the foothills. Yeah. Um, and it makes wonderful, wonderful elk habitat. Uh, so they also started with 1500, which makes a difference. But <laughs> yeah, right. I, I just, you know, I, I say this as a hunter, but there's a little bit of of joking, but some seriousness to it. Are like the cost of our hunting license and the cost of a tag is so cheap. Has there has there been any discussion on increasing the the cost to to to, to fund this program to expand the program? I mean, we have a million over a million licenses sold. Mm-hmm. If you tagged on a you know an elk restoration program and charge a dollar extra and the non-resident hunting license is dirt cheap in comparison to other non-resident hunting license across the West. I mean, has that ever been discussed? Yeah. Um, so remember that I said we had 178 licensed hunters in, um, 2022, 178 times, uh, I'm sorry, 80, 92% of them, were residents so they're at $25 a piece and the remaining 8% were $250 a piece that's you absolutely not prices you could you could you could make those prices 10 times that and you're not really going to change the bottom line right it's 178 people so in the grand scheme of the budget it ends up being decimal dust if you want to turn the dial you would turn the application fee the application fee is where we make more money sure um, uh, those those three seasons, archery, general, late, uh, you can apply for one, two, or all three seasons. You do get dinged with the $11.97 fee every time. So basically, it's $12. So you could pay, um, you know, $36 and get into all of them. Um, and it's that fee that that tends to drive our, our budget more than anything um, for elk, anyway. Uh, there were... There was 104,000 applications um, split across about 56,000 applicants. So again, of those 56,000, some are applying for one, some are applying for two, some are applying for all three seasons, and that that sum equates to that 104,000. Point of the story is, you said we have a million licensed hunters. There's about 600, 700,000 deer hunters. Why do we only have 56,000? applying to hunt elk in pennsylvania that's what i want to target that's what i don't get is if i've got you know at least six hundred thousand people or half a million people that are identifying as deer hunters they're buying a tag a deer tag and a deer license you know annually why don't we have half of them at least or three quarters of them putting in for an elk tag i mean it just it shocks me that we've got that proportion and and basically we're like 10 percent of that are just putting in for the elk season so that's what i'd like to see grow over time i don't really want to see the application fee increase because i feel like that will drive people away um but just trying to increase the number of applicants would help would help the bottom line you yeah that makes sense license fee i just i don't think you're going to touch touch the 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 bottom line altogether I, I just look at like i do a lot of traveling and i look at what i pay for 
like an archery deer tag in Illinois for non-residents, 500 bucks. Yeah. A uh, 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 elk tag for non-resident in Colorado, 700 plus. Yep. Montana, it's probably pushing a thousand. When I was in Montana, um, two thirds of our budget, two thirds came from non-resident hunters. And, and and I look at what we pay to hunt here. I mean, I get everything. Trappers, fur bears, archery. 120 uh, bucks. Yeah. It's dirt cheap. Yeah. And I just think like if you tagged on a dollar for a license fee, a dollar for a doe tag, tripled the price of a non-resident tag, tripled the price of a resident tag, you can you can start adding up the dollars on that aspect. but. I don't know, yep. you know, as a as just a fan of elk and a fan of hunting, and I'd love to see the the opportunities expand in the state. Yep. And I'd probably speak for a, a number of people, and I know people are like ready to crucify me, suggesting that we we make it more <laughs> expensive to hunt. But <laughs> it's like, come license. on, man. <laughs> no, I mean, I I agree with you. Um, that is dictated by the state legislature, so the the game commission can't increase our own license fees. Um, the best thing again that I would tell people right now is if you don't apply for elk, apply. Like it, it I I know the odds are bad. Everybody's like, man, you got better odds of being struck by lightning. You got better odds of winning the lottery. Blah. I mean, everything under the sun. Um, yes, the odds are bad. The only thing I can spin on that is, dude, it's twelve bucks. Like I could dig around in my wife's car and oh. find twelve dollars somewhere. Um, that type of thing. And 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 if I mean, don't apply if that bothers you. But if you want to give back to the elk program, that's one way to do it is just apply. Um, and, and that's how you win, too. I mean, you can't. Again, the odds are terrible. You're never going to win if you don't actually apply. So, yes, your odds are bad, but it's it's uh, you know, you can't can't win if you're not in. You can't even eat McDonald's without spending more than twelve dollars. It's, it's literally just limit one fast food outing and, and there's your money. Yeah, a year. <laughs> yeah, honestly, and yeah. I just applied today. Matter of fact, good. So it's it opened yesterday. The draw, and this is February twenty fourth. So it's open now. Yeah, it should have opened the uh, beginning part of the month, but that's okay. Oh, really? Yeah, it was open for the outdoor show. Um, uh, our marketing team was in Nashville at the National Wild Turkey Federation thing. I know they were selling applications there. Um, so they're, you know, they're trying to increase, uh, the, uh, the applicant pool by extending that, that, uh, window of, of accepted applications. It'll close, um, right around the middle of June. And then the end of July is our drawing this year. I want to say it's July 29th. And there's an auction too, not an auction, but a, uh, a raffle drawing as well. Isn't that correct? Yep. There is two special conservation licenses you'll hear the slang for that is governor tag we'll be like oh there's two there's two governor tags um and what do those go for one of them this is legislation now so again it's outside of the pennsylvania game commission it's the pa legislature that created these tags you know thou shalt do this game commission um one of them is given to the rocky mountain elk foundation they auction it off to the highest bidder and then it's an 80-20 split. So they're allowed to keep 80%. I'm sorry. They're allowed to keep 20% of the proceeds to cover their administrative costs of running the auction and, and advertising and stuff. 
and then 80% is returned to the game commission. The other tag is given to the Keystone Elk Country Alliance. Again, that's a, a nonprofit. They're the ones that run the uh, Elk Country Visitor Center up there. Yeah. And um, they raffle their tag 25 for one or six for 100. And um, again, 80 20 split, same type of thing. So that is a, an avenue where we created these two special tags. And that, that tag has extended season, no zone restriction. Technically, it's an either sex tag. Nobody ever kills a cow. I mean, they're always going to kill a bull. So it is technically an either sex tag, but it you know it's basically a bull tag, um, and uh, it's you know it's a, it's a unique way to to generate revenue that does ultimately come back to the the uh, elk program and the game commission. To answer your question, the uh, RMEF tag yeah. in twenty twenty two went for two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars, which is Jeez. crazy. And the um, Kika tag again, they they raffle it. I think there was like. 10,000 tickets sold and it generated some $400,000 or something like that. It was, you know, it's, it's certainly coveted. Um, but yeah, both those tags do, do return uh, revenue back into the elk program that way. So it's a good thing. I, don't, I mean, the 275 is amazing to me. When I first started here, it was 50,000 and then it went to 85 and then it hit 105, 105 the next year. And then it was like 150, 175, 225, and then 275. At some point, it's got a plateau, right? Like it can't keep going up forever. But who sits around on a Saturday and goes, I'm going to spend $275,000 on an elk tag today? You know, and I'm not guaranteed anything. It's just a, a, a chance at a hunt. <laughs> Somebody with but a lot great. more it's... money than, than the both of us. Yes. Uh, but, I mean, and just realize that we do get some criticism about that, but it does, it benefits all Pennsylvanians. Because 80% of that does go back into the elk program. And it um, almost all that 80% goes back into habitat, which benefits everybody. So, yeah, at the end of the day, that money is used for good. And, you know, you, I guess it's a, you hate to see the rich getting, getting the uh, fruits above the common man, but that money is, is well spent and it's one tag and it's not, restricting the others from from applying elsewhere right it's not stealing anybody's opportunity if it ever there has been like that kind of money attracts attention and so that then creates pressure to create more of those tags and give those tags to more you know give give one to the local fire department give one to this person give one to that person that domino effect could have an effect on you know the common um the common man so to speak like that could erode the uh the number of tags that we can give out to everybody else so i don't really want to see that is the point um, sure but uh two tags right now like let's keep it at two tags and just accept that for what it is and, and the benefit that it provides do you see I, I know this is a long process but do you see more opportunities happening more tags being issued if you have a, a couple years with with a slight increase how, how much does the population need to increase before the, the ruling happens that there's going to be more hunting opportunities? Um, so the tag allocation comes from two places. One, as you're alluding to the population and then two, kind of what we've already talked about is that elk human conflict aspect. So as um, if you've got high population, high conflict, you're going to see a lot of tags in that zone. If you've got low population, high conflict, you're going to see some tags in that zone. Um, if you've got high population, low conflict, they're going to you're going to see some tags in that zone. 
if you've got low population, low conflict, those are the ones we want to grow, right? Like those are the ones that they're not bothering anybody. You know, we're not going to go in there and, and smash that with harvest right away. So um, it just it depends on the zone, depends on the conflicts, depends on the population. And that changes annually. But um, those those two things are the main drivers, right? So like they're flying right now. They'll finish the aerial survey. I go back and I look at all of the uh, basically the, the conflict stuff, like how many times did people come call in and complain about elk? How many elk were killed for crop damage? How many elk were hit on the road? Where did all those things occur? All of that stuff gets funneled down into, all right, this zone's going to get this many tag allocations and this zone's going to get those. Um, so, you know, the, the, the tag allocation was increasing for a little while. We backed it off last year a touch. Um, I, I don't know. It'll just depend on what the aerial survey uh, reveals this year in terms of population. Um, I certainly don't want to see the population go down. I like we're kind of shooting for stability. Like I said, it's okay if we're growing. We we don't want that that slope to be like super super steep. If it's you know, um, slightly above flat line or something like that, that's fine. We, stable or growing population, just not growing fast. If it grows too fast, that's when you get you get into problems. Is it just you, or do you have a support team for Pennsylvania elk? I have a technician. That's it. <laughs> I mean, so again, there's species specialists, right? There's there's yeah. a, a bear biologist, there's an elk biologist. I I mean, I'm within the deer and elk section, so uh, uh, there's two deer biologists, there's the elk biologist, and then we have a common supervisor, and then the, the chain kind of goes up from there. Um, uh, admittedly, most of Pennsylvania is what it's it's deer, right? So like that tends to get a lot of the main focus, which is fine. I totally get it. Um, that's also our main ge- uh, revenue generator. Um, so uh, yeah, it's uh, to answer your question, it's me. I have a technician that um, she does a lot of the field work. Like I am in the field as much as I can be. Um, I have to get a bunch of crap done in the office. So it tends to be like 60, 40, 70, 30, depending on the season. Um, that type of thing. But like the day to day field work, um, I'll just falls to my my technician. I'll be like, hey, can you get this? Can you do that? Blah, blah, blah. But it's usually her and I as a team when we have to capture animals. You have to have two people for safety uh, when you're handling elk just because they're so, so stinking big. And the drugs that we use are highly regulated because because you have to put down an elk. So, yeah. And so you mentioned that you didn't capture what your target was. You let that calf go. So when you capture an animal, what do you what are you doing? What are you looking for? Um, okay, so I talked about the traps earlier. There's two primary methods of capturing elk. One is trapping, again, with those those large single animal traps. Animal goes in, uh, door drops down, and poof, you have an elk. The second way is simply free darting. And for lack of a better term, that's kind of like road hunting with a dart rifle. Um, it's okay because I work for the game commission. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, that's that's using a dart rifle, hanging it out the window, and hoping that elk stands there long enough for you to. You have to range. You have to adjust the pressure on the dart rifle, and then you have to shoot. The, the darts are like six inches. You know, they're it's a really big, awkward projectile, and so you've got about forty, maybe forty-five yards. I've made a fifty-two-yard shot. I probably shouldn't have taken that shot. Um, you know, you can do it, but you're, again, you're shooting this very large projectile out there. It's not flat shooting. It's an arc, you know, yeah. um, that type of thing. So anyway, uh, uh, the animals are, are drugged. They're, they're, they're chemically immobilized is what we would say. So they're basically anesthetized. They're asleep. Um, they're not completely, it's not that they're not out, but they're not, um, 
flexible. They're still pretty rigid type of thing. So you can't so run they, up and get a grip and grin with them and post it on social media? No, and, and we we <laughs> actually have a rule of no social media because it sends the wrong message. It just uh people think it's okay. They, they I don't know. It just my rule is like there's just not enough context in a Facebook picture for people to understand exactly what we're doing. But so we we would dart the animals. Um they would in about uh eight to fifteen minutes they they should go under. Um once they're under, we have to monitor vital signs. We cover their eyes so that they don't uh, get any anything in them that we put like a goop in their eyes because they can't blink and then we cover them with a blindfold to keep them calm um, we administer oxygen and from there it's pull a blood sample typically from the jugular um, if we're gonna collar we'll collar the animal and then they get ear tags as well uh, cows we will check lactation status um, and i think that's those are the big ones for now um we can't we have done pregnancy studies where we will ultrasound on the spot um but we have we're not doing that this year so uh yeah we try and work them up pretty fast right it's a stressful event obviously um so once they're down usually between 10 15 minutes depending on circumstances and then we reverse you get them back up on their feet and we're done so like 30 minutes when it all goes well uh from start to finish for the traps instead of free darting where you just using a pistol um, but we're just running up to the side of it, sticking that pistol through the netting and and quick popping them and then running away uh, until they calm down and go down. Do you do you find that people don't want to shoot bulls that have been collared and, and have an ear tag? I've never heard that. Uh, most of the hunters are like, can I keep the collar? And <laughs> I'm like, no. <laughs> oh, man. I, I realize it's like the ultimate duck band or whatever, but those collars are worth about twenty five hundred a piece. So I'm like, no, you can't keep uh, them. I don't know if I could bring myself to shoot a bull with a collar and an ear tag on it. Is <laughs> even even under the circumstances of a once in a lifetime tag and a monster bull. Okay, but because it's because it's been handled. No, I I don't necessarily have that. I just it. I see it as like, uh tainted not because someone handled it but just because of the look of it it like from a majestic standpoint it takes away from from the look yeah does that sound I, corny I, I, I'm I, just... no it's not corny I, I totally get it um i think i'm sure there are hunters that agree with you i think when they're looking at that monster through the scope and honestly we don't we try not to collar the huge bulls because we know that they're going to be targeted you know what i mean like i I, you, you put a collar out there in in March, and then if it's on a big bull, you're just going to get it back in in uh, November. So, like a lot of good it did you. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, we try and put them more on the raghorns, uh, that type of thing. But we still do need survival from those upper upper cohorts. So, uh, just realize that I have a job to do. Like I'm trying to do the job to the best of my ability. I totally understand where you're coming from and what you're saying. Um, but I think hunters change their mind in the moment. Um, uh, and there's nothing illegal about killing a collar. I should say that too. We send a letter to the hunters with a, a ton of information in it. There's one sentence in there that says something like, it takes a lot of effort to collar animals. If you have the choice, please refrain from doing so, but there's nothing illegal about it. Okay, so it's just a, a recommendation that... It, it, my frustration comes from, and this is just me as the biologist totally being selfish here, Collar comes through, right? A collared cow comes through. And one of our questions is, how many other elk were in the group? So how many other elk were in the group with this collared individual? I don't know, like 25. And I'm like, 
and you you shot the collared one? Like, yeah. Why'd you do that? <laughs> yeah. They wanted to make so, your job harder. I guess. I don't know what it was, but I'm just like, if you could leave those ones, it would make our life easier. Well, if you have the choice, you know, if there's 25 out there and there's one collar in the group, just just avoid that one. Uh, but so, sometimes I think it might be the comfort of knowing who you hit. If you shoot the collared one and they all scatter and go running off uh, and you got to put a second round or something, now you know who's who's who type of thing. Um, I don't know that. I'm speculating. So. Yeah. But people actually ask for them. They want to keep them like a like a duck band. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. But <laughs> the, the, the first the ear tags uh, can stay like if people want the ear tags, I usually run the numbers and, and give them the history of the animal. I don't give out locations, but I can give out like when the animal was collared, when the ear tags were put in, you know, was, if it was a calf, something like that. The first mallard I shot when I lived in Alaska, my first duck ever was was banded and had a radio um collar on it that's pretty and, cool uh, yeah i i sent it back and got a letter where it was banded and yeah and radio collar it was pretty cool but i saw that- a neck band on a goose one time on a canada and i shot it because i wanted the neck band and of course like two of my bb's hit the neck band and cracked it all to pieces so <laughs> shit <laughs> yeah that was cool getting a letter but I don't know. I'll let you know if I draw a, a an elk tag in Pennsylvania. I'm calling you up and telling you, hey, I shot one that had a radio collar on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the day will come too when we get away from that. Like, I mean, I told you I, I talked about the reasoning behind radio collars. It, it it's our 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 spies, uh survival and then habitat selection. The day will come when that shrinks to an ear tag with a solar panel or something like that, you know. Um, or, or some other very inconspicuous type marking. We're just not there yet. Is there any anything that you want the people listening to this to know that whether it's a criticism or a misconception or just something that we don't know that we should know? So, I mean, I always try and bring up CWD and just the importance of that. We did already talk about it. Um, you know, again, most of our, I shouldn't say most, I gotta rephrase that. All of our elk are CWD free to my knowledge at the moment. Um, uh, it's not going to have a devastating, a, a completely, you know, annihilating effect on the elk population, but it's going to change things and whatever responsibility, you know, whatever contribution you can make into slowing the spread of CWD is helpful. Don't feed, um, you know, things of that nature. It is illegal to feed elk, uh, it still happens, but it's, it is illegal to do that. Anything that congregates the animals is technically illegal. And the only other thing that we didn't talk about was our Elk Smart program. Elk Smart program is really geared toward um, the the viewing recreational component. You know, we've talked a lot about hunting aspect. Um, we we kind of have this this split in Pennsylvania where you're either the the hunter after elk or you're the the viewing person after elk. I mean, there's there's both obviously, but um, the non consumptive elk viewing, elk culture, elk tourism is is still an important piece of the whole thing and and uh um i i don't want to how do i say this i have a responsibility to manage elk for the non-consumptive user the same way that i have a responsibility to manage elk for the consumptive user the hunter that said we need people to be responsible when they're viewing elk right that was the the motivation behind our elk smart program there's four points ha 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 
um, give elk space, don't feed them, don't name them, and then do your part. Um, the first two are pretty obvious, right? Like we say a hundred yards, try and keep a hundred yards from the animal that may, that makes sure that they are comfortable in their natural environment. And, you know, your actions are not going to disturb them. It also keeps you safe. Uh, we see some really, really risky and, and what I would call bad behavior during the rut. Bulls are literally surging with testosterone. I mean, the amount of testosterone in their bloodstream increases like a hundredfold. You know, they want to kill every other bull out there. They want to breed every cow they see. It's not safe to be close to them um, or get in between them and their harems or anything like that. So give the animal space. Uh, don't feed. It's illegal. I talked about that already. You know, obviously it contributes to disease spread. Um, don't name the animals. This one, everybody has a really hard time with like, why, why shouldn't I name elk? What harm does it cause? And I have a hard time articulating this, but basically they're not pets, right? Okay. Yep. They're wild animals. Um, we Pennsylvanians have a responsibility to keep those animals as wild as we can possibly keep them so that they, they stay wild, right? For, for your kids, for your kids, kids. Um, when you name an animal, you kind of, you, you, you take something away from them, right? You steal some of that, that natural independence that they have from humans and it, it degrades, uh, you know, that, that wild essence, that wild cachet, if you will. It's like a farm and, uh, animal. Yeah, right. It's not a pet. That's the best thing I can say is they're not pets. They're wild animals. Please don't name them. The other thing is it, it just causes controversy because every time like a really big bull will get a, a, a name or a, a hashtag or something. And it's a big bull. So what happens? Big publicity. It gets shot. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, it, well, that's what get, I mean. The publicity when he gets shot. Oh, they yes. killed Curly Q. Yeah, yes. There's a very simple way to avoid that. Yeah. Don't name the animals. Yep. Um, and then the last thing is do your part. We always say, look, you have a responsibility or you have the right to call somebody out for bad behavior. They're your elk just as much as they're everybody else's elk. So if you see something doing somebody doing something that you think is risky or dangerous, you can call them out. You can uh, call the, the game warden. You can call the state police, you know, but um, we can't be everywhere at one time. So we always just ask people to kind of play that role. That's the essence of our Elk Smart program in a nutshell. And I should have mentioned that, that that town we mentioned at the beginning of this, Benazette, is like the epicenter of there's an elk visitation center. People come from all over to these elk viewing areas to watch big bulls basically in the rut, yeah. bugling and breeding and fighting and everything right yep yep and um it's a high visitor traffic area and, the, and I, I talked about elk culture you know that's really what i'm talking about is that town has has developed uh or cultivated an elk culture around tourism and most of it is during the rut right most of it is during september october when those you got fall foliage you've got you know rut activity it's it's a really exciting neat time to be there it's it can be crowded, um, but that's again when you see kind of that that uh, risky behavior, bad behavior, if you will. And is the elk viewing area are they are they open during hunting season, like during the elk seasons? Yes. So our archery season, we don't. There are no tags in the zones surrounding the viewing the visitor center. So um, you know we don't. There's nobody hunting uh, archery elk while people are simultaneously trying to watch them during the rut. Uh, during the general season in November, there are tags put into those zones. Um, and then there are in the late season as well. But uh, for the most part, we're trying to avoid, you know, that, that, uh, 
kind of negative stigma of of people hunting elk while others are trying to watch them. <laughs> sure. I can imagine you got a bull of a lifetime and there's a guy trying to get a picture of it. Yeah. Awkward. Yeah. Well, I think we can probably wrap things up there unless we, we didn't cover something. No, I mean, we pounded a uh, population. We talked about habitat. We talked about CWD and the disease stuff. We talked a lot about hunting. We hit a little bit on elk history and we talked about the elk smart program. And I think that's, uh, I mean, we covered a lot of ground today. So sincerely appreciate the opportunity to be here. You know, it's, it's always good to have these platforms and, and get to, to know different people. So I, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, Jeremy, thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy and you have an important job and I commend you for what you do. And and I hope you are successful in doubling the population. And I hope my my uh, kids and grandkids are hunting elk as a result. Yes, I sincerely hope the same thing. Like uh, uh, at 12, you can start building points for, for kids. And so my son's going to be 12 this year and I'm going to start building some points for him. Yeah, same same with mine he he just turned 12 this year and and got his hunting license and so yep and that's we'll, i should i said that that's always my joke is like i don't put in to actually hunt because if i first of all i have to be at the check station but second of all if i drew a tag i could just the scandal and <laughs> you know <laughs> the criticism that would come flying out over that so i just don't even try i don't put myself in that situation but i buy my point right like you can just buy the point you're not actually in the hat, but we'll gladly take the 12 bucks and just give you the bonus point. And that's what I do. I, I'm going to accumulate a massive number of points. And then when I retire, there you go. Game commission can't tell me what to do anymore. I'm going to totally try and <laughs> I'm going to be an old man, but I'm going to totally uh, cash those points in and hopefully kill me a big bull. Right on. Oh, well, I, I, if I ever draw one, I will be calling you for, for some information. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That that is the busiest time of year when I feel like I get calls from all kinds of different people. And can you guess the second busiest time? It's right now. Right now. What what's why what's going on right now? Shedding shed, we're coming up on shedding. Oh shed so, antlers. Jeremy, good buddy, old pal. How you doing? Where are you seeing them bulls at? You know? Yeah. <laughs> well, how about Utah just closed their shed season down? Yeah. They they closed it. Yeah. Because why? of the just the impact but, of foot traffic and this time of year with uh high uh snow um snowfall and so they closed the whole state down yeah the the onus behind shed hunting seasons is typically related to um pressure and, and damage to the like they're arguably in their worst nutritional condition right like they they there's no green forage you know they build up fat reserves during the summer and the fall and then they ride those fat reserves through the winter for the most part. And, um, you know, March is kind of that tail end of winter. You know, we haven't hit spring green up, but they haven't they haven't. Uh, but they've been, you know, it's been a, a, a long winter. And so they've depleted a lot of those fat reserves. So, again, that's kind of the, the idea that they're in their worst nutritional condition that time of year. And then if you get people over there just bumping them and constantly pursuing, you know, I mean, the harassment just never ends. Um, and so that's the onus behind a shed season. I don't know if we'll ever have that. I doubt we'll ever have that in Pennsylvania. I just, I don't, we don't have the winters that the Western United States does. And I just, I see it as a political nightmare to try and enforce something like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting that, that Utah did close that down. That's, I mean, because they had a bad winter, presumably. Yeah. And I, I 
should probably have more background information on it, but that was the big topic of the shed season being closed down. And there were certain regions that they were targeting that were more sensitive that they thought, well, if they close these regions down, then people will focus on the other regions and create a more impact on those regions that are open. And so they yep. just close it down across the board just yep. because of the impact that, and I think that's that's one of the things we talk about here, just the impact of of hunting and and stressing those animals out and how it it's detrimental. Just your presence is detrimental. And there's a yeah. lot of studies that support that. Yeah. And so and people always see it as like, well, it's just me, it's just me, but it, it's never just you. You know, I mean, it's uh we get that a lot during viewing season. Well, it's just me out here, you know, approaching this elk at 10 yards away or something like that. It's not just you. The next people that drive up are going to do the exact same thing. Yeah. Same thing for shed hunting, right? Like you're not the only one out there bumping them around. There's a lot of other people. And the only other thing I'll throw out there is that the popularity of shed hunting has like just skyrocketed. I mean, across the nation, in including Pennsylvania, since I've been here, I feel like I've seen an exponential increase. Dogs, I mean, people take time off from work to go to go shed hunting. And I mean, it's great. I want like everybody's got cabin fever. They want to get out. It's a it's a really fun form of, of recreation. You just got to do it responsibly. Right. So, yeah. And antlers are big money, man. And you get a big 350, 380 inch bull. It's it's, it's a lot of dough. Yeah. I, there's a guy in the elk range. Uh, I won't say where he is, but. He, he goes, you want to see my shed collection? I was like, yeah. go down into his basement. And he's literally got a stack of sheds from like, you know, the past 30 years, a stack of sheds in his basement. And I'm like, what are you doing with them? Well, I just, you know, I just stack them up here. I'm just like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, that's cool. They're just going to sit there. And, and when you pass, your kids are going to throw them away. But whatever. Yeah. There's actually people. And I've talked to a guy. He's like, uh, I'm heading to Nebraska. And I'm like, for what? He's like, a, a, a shed hunt. And I'm like, what do you mean a shed hunt? He's like, I, he basically, he's paying an outfitter to go to the property that this guy outfits and paying him amount of money to shed hunt. They plan them. They got to plan them. I'm like, that's freaking crazy, dude. Right? Like, if they want to claim a success rate, they're planting them. That's what I think. I mean, I've been hunting a long time and I've I've found sh- actual sheds three. Three three sheds. So it's like yeah. I mean, but some guys do it successfully. So I don't want to knock knock it and saying it's all luck. It's been just luck for me, but yeah. I, I know guys that find them in you know, you're in and you're out. Yeah. But and they work seasonally and they, they or they take the, the spring off or they have a dog or something like that. Like I can't spend a week out there. First of all, I don't have the shed lust that some people do. It's probably due to my career. But like, I mean, there's people that spend a lot of time looking for sheds. And um, and again, good for them. It just, as long as you're doing something with it. <laughs> don't put yeah. it in your basement in a yeah. pile. So. All right. Well, I think we could wrap it up there. Thanks again right. for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure meeting you, Jim. Uh, let me know if there's anything else I can help with. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it. All right, I'm out. All right, bye-bye.